Facebook Stew viewers, today, for the first time, I have a guest who's coming to us internationally. Actually, we're not dependent on that underground cable anymore, um, though maybe we would have been better off trying to get the audio set up through Skype. But in any case, I'm so pleased to introduce you to Barney Hoskins. And let me tell you a little bit about why he's with us today. So you all have your favorite bands, right? And I have two. And my favorite bands are The Band, which, uh, as you know, emerged from kind of uh, Bob Dylan's side pocket in the early 70s, and also Steely Dan, who emerged from their own weird foreheads while they were at Bard College in upstate New York. And amazingly enough, this man wrote two books about my two favorite bands. And so I could not resist when his new book came out, Major Dudes, which is about Steely Dan, and just blindly sending him an email that begged him to come on my show. And the subject line was, fangirl with a TV show. So how could he resist that? So viewers, I'd like you to meet Barney Hoskins, who's speaking to us from London. Is that right, Barney? That's absolutely right. And so how's the weather there today across the pond? Uh, it's sort of hazy, but warmish. We've had a, a, an unprecedentedly hot summer that you may have read about. So we're just sort of recovering from that. We've, we had like, uh, yeah, we had seriously uh, warm temperatures for about six, seven weeks. Well, us, us too. So that's global warming for you. But um, tell yeah. us about where you are and um, and about Rock's Back Pages, which you started and are the curator of. Well, I'm in um, I'm in the archive room of the Rock's Back Pages offices in Hammersmith. So uh, a rock landmark that some of your viewers may be familiar with is the Hammersmith Odeon which for a long time was sort of the London venue. Everybody and their uncle had played there. So we're about five minutes walk from the Hammersmith Odeon. There's a famous live Motorhead album, No Sleep Till Hammersmith, which references that. Um, so that's where it's West London. Um, and um, yeah, we have offices here. So we work in one office and then across the hallway we have um our archive of magazines and, and tapes and you can see the kind of mess behind me it's a it's just some mags there and there's some tapes there we digitize the tapes and um yeah that's 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 the kind of daily grind here at rocks back pages what gave you the idea and what made you realize that um writing about rock music needed an archive like this well, it was just an idea that came to me at the height of the sort of dot-com craze. So we're going back almost 20 years now. RBP is, is about 18 years old. So everyone was kind of hatching harebrained schemes. And it just came to me that, that to try and create a kind of definitive and comprehensive library of um, interviews and reviews with everyone and anyone um, would be um, a smart thing to do and a fun thing to do. So, you know, my background was in music journalism. I knew a bunch of writers. I had spent um, the second half of the 90s 
as the US correspondent for Mojo magazine. So I lived in upstate New York. I was based there and I did a lot of pieces for Mojo. But I knew a lot of American writers. And so we've ended up with something which is probably about half American writers and half UK writers with some outside of those territories. We've got almost 700 writers on Rock's Back Pages now. And we just slowly and steadily and kind of more or less organically digitize their work going back kind of 60 years. So we have some of the earliest writers and then we have some fairly young contemporary writers. How is what is life like for these fairly contemporary young writers? Because, of course, journalism as a whole has taken such a horrible hit. I mean, who can make a living from it anymore except maybe like 10 people? So um, and maybe you can also tell us what it's like for you as, you know, as a music journalist from pre-internet to now. Yeah, of course, there's been um, seismic shifts, Eileen. It's a completely different landscape. And I couldn't, in all conscience, recommend that a 19-year-old go into music journalism, even though there are plenty who are doing music journalism courses at universities and colleges. And I, I hope it's training them for something. But it's <laughs> very, very, very difficult, very difficult. Uh, uh, as you surmise, very difficult to make a living um, as any kind of cultural critical writer now. Um, You know, so what we're about really is, um, you know, uh, we essentially are a resource, a research tool for, uh, for students, for academics, for researchers, for documentary filmmakers. Um, I mean, that's, that's what rocks back pages is. It, it is, um, you know, it is it is a library. It's not a kind of music site that's addressing what's happening and unfolding in the world of music on a kind of you know daily or weekly basis. Um, but we try to keep abreast of of what's happening in the present. It's not all it's not all about the past. But sure, it's very very difficult. And I think there's a sort of wider sadness about the decline in the role of of the critic or the journalist. We're just in, we're just in uncharted waters really now you know and i don't know where it's all going but people will always want to write and people will always want to read and and i i don't think that's ever going to go away well i guess we could keep our fingers crossed about that because if they don't then this show is kaput and probably rocks back pages as well but so in front of me i have two of your books and in my introduction i mentioned that you managed to hit on my two favorite bands but one book you wrote and you apparently did most of the interviewing for, and actually since you lived up in the Woodstock area, you probably got to see some of the people who were in the book firsthand, although perhaps it wasn't in their heyday since it wasn't until I think the latter part of the 90s that you were there. And then you have an anthology. So can you tell us about why, like what compelled the Band book and what compelled the Steely Dan book. And I also have to mention that the Steely Dan book was so timely because, of course, sadly enough, we lost one half of Steely Dan this year. We did. Well, I mean, Walter Becker died just before the book came out. Um, so that was that was very sad timing, from certainly from my point of view. But, yeah, they're very different books. The band is a, a fairly straightforward biography in many ways. I mean, it's it goes back a long way now. I think I did most of the research for that circa 1991. I think the book 
probably came out around 93, you know. So it was an attempt to tell the band's story. They had been my favorite, certainly my favorite American group, Eileen, from probably about the age of 14, something like that. I didn't come in with music from Big Pink. I came in with Rock of Ages in 1973, and then I kind of worked backwards. Um, and I just thought they were so extraordinary. And and it was just, it was um, a story of, of great talent and great pathos. And I I just, I just felt that, that somebody should 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 try and tell that story. Levon, as it happens, was working on his own book at the same time, so we we, we were almost in competition, you know. Um, and I mean, you know, Levon had rights to the story that I didn't have, but I hope that I was able to tell perhaps a slightly more detached story. And um, so then, the Steely Dan is an anthology of articles. I interviewed Steely Dan a couple of times. I interviewed Fagan once. Um, so, um, uh, again, I think Steely Dan, very different from the band, but one of the great American groups. And um, I wanted to try and pull together some of the best writing on that most literate of, you know, American songwriting duos. And we had a fair number of, of the contributors already on Rock's Back Pages and, um, three or four maybe who weren't and i think some of the best interviews they've given and some of the best writing about their extraordinary records well um i'm glad that we coincide here and if we have a chance i might actually read two little passages one from each where in the steely dan book the band is mentioned and where in the band book steely dan is mentioned and i didn't i don't even know if you know that those are in there but you've also written a t you've written a ton of books and um, some of your books cover um, L.A. music, both the music of the Canyons, Joni Mitchell, et cetera, and the music of the streets, which is more like the doors and stuff like that. Um, you, and uh, you've also written about Haight-Ashbury. You actually have a funny book about mullets, which I had given to somebody and not even knowing that you were the author. So um, as far as all the books are concerned, I didn't see, and maybe I'm missing one, that you wrote about any bands outside of the United States, at least a book anyway. Was that a coincidence, or is, be is it because you spent half your time in America and half your time in England? Well, I suppose the short answer to that is, um, A, I have written a couple of things that are um, you know, more UK-centric, if you like. I wrote a very short book about glam rock, or glitter rock, as you guys might call it. And I wrote an oral history of Led Zeppelin, uh, who yeah. in many ways, yeah, I mean, I, in many ways, they were as American as they were British, but but by birth, obviously, they were they were a British band, but but I, they were so massive in America that they, they, like the Rolling Stones, they almost have honorary American status, I think. And their influences were all so, so American, like like mine were. So, so the other answer, um, or the real answer to your question is that I, I was, you know, like a lot of Brits, I was just very smitten with American pop culture from a very early age. I don't know why particularly, why it got me, why I was so um, entranced by the idea of America and why, why I wanted to 
go there and travel there and why the music spoke to me in ways that a lot of British music didn't speak to me. I mean, and that's always been the way, you know, with punk rock, I was just much more interested in the American bands than I was in the British bands. You know, it just seemed more musical to me. So there's a whole romance there. There's a whole, you know, just from the from 3,000 or 6,000 miles away or whatever it is, um, you know, America is is like a vast adventure to to someone who who grows up in this relatively small island. So that's um, it's interesting that you mentioned punk because there is a reference in the book about the band to uh, punk breathing down the necks of other American music at the time. And I guess um, I think of punk as kind of a, a coalition between American bands and British bands, but the British bands kicking it off first. But you haven't written anything about the punk era or, that I was able to find. Is that deliberate? I haven't, other than in um, my L.A. book, Waiting for the Sun, I wrote a fair amount about the L.A. punk scene there. Um, but I wasn't as in, enthralled by punk as some of my contemporaries. Because, um, you know, at the end of the day, I really love music and I found a lot of punk very reductive and sort of amusical and totally got that that was the point of it. But that's why, you know, television's Marquee Moon uh, it means much more to me than never mind the uh, bollocks, if I'm allowed to say that. Um, <laughs> it's because it's much more musical and kind of, uh, yeah, just sophisticated, really. I understand it has a sort of punk edge, but to me, it's music. And music ultimately is what I'm, I'm interested in. I'm not. I'm not just interested in 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 three chords and and uh, and splenetic rage, you know. So, um, I think that that that's the point for me. Um, and I I love I loved the first Clash album for some reasons, but I didn't I didn't like a lot of the UK punk bands. Um, it just it was just a lot of noise, really. But I loved the Ramones. <laughs> Having said all of that, I loved the Ramones. Um, and they meant a lot more to me than than either the Pistols or the Clash, and still do. And it and it's something about just how American they were. But I would also say that America absolutely invented punk rock. We we didn't. Um, I mean, you know, punk was born with with the Velvets and Iggy and the Stooges um, and some other acts, you know. And and you know, there was there was a very thriving punk scene in you know '74 in New York already, whether people were calling it punk or not. But the Dolls and all of the the stuff that preceded that that to me is the, I mean, the whole idea of punk is really a sort of an American aesthetic, American an American concept, I think, that was co-opted by Dole Q Britain. So then we so then another uh, then there was rap, which was breathing down the necks of let's say, white music. How um, rap to me is like all about the beats. As a, you know, there's definitely there's lyrics and there's lyrics to listen to, but I just feel like it's different than anything else that I listened to back in the day. It's just, it's a monster of its own. What's, what's your take on, on rap? I suppose my take on it is, um, I mean, ultimately, I'm pretty ignorant of it. I've done some writing on rap and I've listened to a lot of it. Um, and my 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 somewhat sort of 
you know, reductive take on it is that it's it, it, it's music, but it's a different sort of music. It's much more about the, the, the sort of spoken word, the poetics, the reportage, the immediacy of addressing social conditions. Um, and one doesn't go back to hip hop records, or at least I don't, in quite the same way as I go back to you know, whether it's Todd Rundgren or Beethoven or the band or Steely Dan. So it doesn't necessarily have some some records really do have um, musical dimensions that are um, very compelling. And uh, the musical settings in themselves are enough to go back to whether you whether you're really tuning into um the rapping or not you know but but so i would say like the fugees the score album or uh jizz's um um liquid swords album i can listen to them but i don't necessarily go back to um even public enemy for the music you know it's just it's just a different experience it's a different it's a different art form ultimately for me and uh Speaking of uh, new versus old, so this summer I went to see Roger Daltrey at a beautiful uh, outdoor, our beautiful outdoor Tanglewood in Western Mass. I don't know if you've mm. ever been there for a concert, but um, unfortunately, if you're not sitting under the shed, you're dependent on screens. And I was able to pull my chair up and basically be at the screen. And boy, did was I sad. I mean, to me, Roger Daltrey is the guy zipping up on who's next, and also, of course, Tommy, which I was addicted to. And I was working in a movie theater when Tommy came out, and I asked the manager to put me on every shift, and I saw it, you know, literally 14 times in a row. And I, as I sat there in my lawn chair and sang along uh, with the entire production of Tommy, which they did, obviously, minus Pete Townsend and minus Keith Moon and John Entwistle, I did not think Daltrey was in good voice, and I kind of looked around, looked at all these old people who were me, and said, what am I doing this for? And I don't think I'm going to go back there. So um, what's, your th what's your opinion about uh, the dinosaurs that keep dragging themselves around? Uh, yeah, I think ultimately, you know, rock and roll, the whole point of rock and roll in its inception was that it was a sort of youth revolt. and no one imagined anyone getting getting this old and still churning out the hits, you know. Um, so, you know, you could argue it's slightly self-defeating. Um, but I think some of the old dinosaurs have reinvented themselves along the way and, and not rested on their laurels and not just rehashed their back catalogue. Um, and they're the more interesting people to follow, if you like. Give us, um, give me, give us some examples. Well, <laughs> yeah, there aren't that many. Um, <laughs> I mean, I suppose you know someone someone who has been very restless in terms of you know changing it up would be Neil Young. Even though I can't declare with my hand on my heart that I think he's made a great record in in a while, uh, at least he's um, trying. At least, yeah, he's. He's he's always he's always trying to do something different, um, just for the sake of it, you know. And 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 I suppose that's, you know, that's that that's worth doing. Um, 
you know, I mean, I, 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 I'm one of those people who thinks that most of the great acts have a sort of, you know, they have a kind of, they have a golden period. They have, they have a, um, they have a kind of window where they probably do most of their best work. And so you have four or five extraordinary records in a row. And then, and then it's kind of mined out in a way. This the same, the same as mined out, I think. And I, you know, you, you, you look at, you look at everyone from the Rolling Stones to indeed Neil Young. You know, most of the most of the, the the records that I revere were done by those artists. Probably in the seventies. The seventies was my decade to come into as a as a teenage pop consumer. So that's what I hark back to. I mean, much more than the sixties, I think, because I was too young. But the seventies, you know, there's just so many extraordinary records made in that time. And I and and it, I, I'm not I'm not you know, stating categorically that that was the best music that any of those people ever made. It just, it just so happens that that's, that's where I tuned in, that, that, that was where it was all happening for me in the present moment. And I was buying those records as they came out, you know, and, um, and so, so some of the shine had come off that already by the eighties, but the eighties was a very different decade and a very sort of sterile decade, I think kind of creatively, following on from the 70s. That's funny um, that you say that because I have a daughter who's 31 and she just, you know, she feels that she was at the right age, the perfect age for all that 80s stuff, which, you mm. know, I can tolerate, but I don't love. But I feel that having graduated from high school in 1970, I was, you know, people have these t this T-shirt that says, I may be old, but I heard all the cool bands or something like that. I was an 11 year old when the Beatles hit America. I feel that I was at the perfect age for everything, everything in music that's happened maybe sure. up until the late 70s. But I wanted yeah. to ask you about that because you mentioned that window and in both of these books, um, Steely Dan more so because they had a run of maybe five good albums and then some trailers like after they took their hiatus. But the band, except for, um, you know, except for um, the live albums, really after like three or four albums, that was kind of it. They just ran out of gas, I think, or just didn't write those songs, succumbed to drug addiction and everything horrible that happened to them. Um, so have you ever had the nerve to interview an artist and after their heyday and say like, did you know that you were only gonna have, not say, did you know you were gonna have, everything you did after this album was crap, but kind of talk to them about their heyday without, and find out if they recognize, like I, you know, the Woody Allen movie, Annie Hall, like to me, everything he's done since then went, rap, went downhill. So I always thought, did he know when he did Annie Hall, like I'm not gonna ever get any better than this, or are they always optimistic that things are gonna get better? Well, Eileen, I mean, you talk to any artist at any stage in their career and 95% of them will say, my new record is the best thing I've ever done, you know. Um, so there's, and, and they may genuinely believe that or they may just be saying it, but you, you, I would never dare to tell somebody that their best days were behind them and they may not be anyway. You know, people do surprise you. They do come out with... Um, you know, they, they do come out with albums. They do have second wins and even sometimes third wins. So, 
But it just seems that as with most great talents, whether it's mathematical genius, I don't know, the great chess players or the great artists, the great composers, uh, and, and in some cases, some of the great writers, you know, that, that they have a sort of purple patch, uh, you know, an obvious one with the Rolling Stones. I mean, they're, you know, the run of records from from Beggar's Banquet through to, you know, Exile on Main Street is, is sort of unparalleled in terms of that kind of rootsy, bluesy rock and roll. And, and I don't think anything they did before that or after that really, really stands up next to it you know um that's that's one of the most obvious examples for me but the band you know i mean yeah the, the the band uh for whatever reasons had an had an even you know smaller window i think and really you know how much great music did they make i mean i think the you can't say that they had a run of of albums like the stones did or david bowie did or steely dan did but um they did, funnily enough, come back, I think, with a pretty good record after a really very bad record. Um, they came back with Northern, Northern Lights, Southern Cross in 1975, which is, you know, a really decent record. And um, But, I mean, Rock of Ages was an extraordinary live album. I don't think it ever got any better than the second album, you know, and, and, and the first one. I think is pretty pretty great um, and and so influential, but I mean yeah there were there there were problems there and there was disharmony and there were drug problems and, and there were things that that they never expected to encounter. Then you know they were they were these country boys who'd had a good run with Ronnie Hawkins. I don't think they ever expected life to get any better than that. And suddenly they're flying around on Learjets with Bob Dylan. And I mean, things like that just do strange things to your head, Eileen. And, and it did strange things to their head, even though they attempted this kind of simple country life and the cat skills, you know, um, I mean, I wrote a book that's a sort of um, a compliment to, or a follow on from the band book called, uh, called Small Town Talk that came out a couple of years ago, which is really a, you know, a, a, a fairly graphic history of what happened up in Woodstock, New York. So it's not just about the band, it's about all the other artists that were there at, at that time, you know, the place that Dylan put on the map. And, you know, so on the one hand, it's this idyllic and bucolic place where everyone's getting it together in the country in the contemporary phrase. And, and, and on the other hand, it's just sort of infested with, 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 with drug dealers and chaos and, and uh, you know, relationships and marriages breaking down. And I mean, it just that always seems to be the arc of the story, you know, that, that, you know, you, 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 you have some success and then, and then, and then the, the wheels come off the bus and there are very few people who come back from that. I mean, I, you know, we, there's, we don't need the litany of casualties and the people we've lost along the way, rock and roll entertainment, the arts just attract malformed human beings who may have great talent, but they're not, they're not good at real life. And um, the lucky ones get a, get a chance to, stop in their tracks and say, you know, I'm going to die if I don't change something here. And their wheels were really on fire, huh? So I have one the more question for you. Uh, who's, give me a few, at least two interviews, dead or alive, that you never got that you would have uh, sold your soul at the crossroads to get? Um, 
I don't know. I mean, there are people I haven't interviewed, um, like Neil Young. I mean, I would love to have interviewed Aretha Franklin. That's never going to happen now. Um, but she did very. She was pretty interview shy and pretty, you know, pretty pretty shy all round. Um, and um, but I think she would have been a fascinating interview. I really do. Um, there's a lot of kind of mystery and sadness, I think, in Aretha's story um, that never probably came out. And does it need to come out? I don't know. I'd like to have interviewed Neil Young, but probably in his kind of, I never interviewed him um, in his sort of real sort of heyday. I think would love to have connected with him, you know, at some point in the seventies. Um, Bowie, I never interviewed. Um, but um a lot of the others I have. Keith Richards, I've interviewed Jagger. I haven't. I guess I would, I, you know, I, I'd like to have interviewed Jagger, but I'm not sure I would have got much more out of him than anybody else has. He's pretty canny. Keith, I've interviewed a couple of times. And, you know, he's really, um, he's really an open book, as anyone who's read his autobiography knows. And, that's, and so he's that's, uh, interesting that you mentioned that because I was thinking, um, as we wrap up, of Elvis Costello, who would be um, in my trio, but and you've got quotes from him, but he wrote a pretty remarkable book. So um, maybe when they do write these books that are just, um, they're very revealing and intimate. Keith's was, Elvis's was. Um, maybe at that point you step back and say, like you just said, how much more can I do? But, Barney, I have to say that interviewing you and putting you on the other end of the of the line was just such a sheer pleasure for me. Um, and hopefully introduce um, Rock's Back Pages to viewers and to listeners. And I want to thank you so much for putting up with the technical difficulties and uh, agreeing to meet me at uh, an hour that worked for both of us. And I look forward to uh, more of your books coming out and to going back to your back catalog and. Uh, reading some more. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you so much, Eileen. I'm flattered by your interest, and um, it's been very, very pleasurable talking with you. So thanks again. Thanks again to you. And viewers, um, I just hope you enjoyed meeting Barney as much as I did. You'll see interspersed through the episode um, cut pictures of the front covers of his books and information about rocksbackpages.com. Thank you for joining me. And I know um, if you're anything like me, Barney didn't have to say much. He just had to haul out that accent and I fall into a puddle at his feet. So thanks for joining us for Books Do. Thanks again to Barney and have a good night.